Heavenly Father, thank you for knitting us together uh, as a family and as a fellowship uh, by uh, the merits and mediation of your Son, Jesus Christ, and for empowering us with your Holy Spirit. And we pray now that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might behold you in all of your majesty as we look uh, into your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is it. We, we finally have finished Acts, uh, or we will have. And this actually is probably, um, uh, this class is going to have a lot going on, and I would appreciate uh, as much feedback as you're willing to give, uh, because we see uh, what it looks like for Paul to preach as a prisoner, uh, not just uh, a prisoner literally as one who is in chains, because he is, uh, but also uh, one who uh, is in a sort of cultural prison. And we're going to see what that, how that manifests itself and how... As I mentioned in a sermon a couple weeks ago, uh, the gospel really is for everyone. And so I want us through the lens of Acts 28 to think about if the gospel is for everyone, how does the Advent preach the gospel to everyone? How is that manifested uh, in our life uh, and in our mission? And I'm going to bring in some uh, sociological conversations and some experiences that Lauren and I had uh, when we were in Washington, D.C., uh, for the 4th of July. Um, I'm glad that we took the kids to Washington, D.C. for the 4th of July. Uh, the most fun I'll never have again. And um, check, uh, we've, we've done that. And, uh, but the girls were great on the road, but it's really, I couldn't wait to get back to work from my vacation. You know the feeling. Well, I'm actually going to read the bulk of Acts 28, so just sit tight, but listen. After we, that's Paul and Luke and the entire crew of 200 some odd people, brought safely through, because you remember in Acts 27 they were shipwrecked, we then learned that the island was called Malta. Great place to get shipwrecked. Uh, the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and so not, saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed." Okay, then I'm going to skip forward. They arrive in Sicily, uh, in Syracuse, and get out of there very quickly. Uh, and they make their way up the boot uh, to the Appian Way. Uh, verse 14, There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when he came into Rome... Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier that guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, 
Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, and yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no reason to bring charge against they, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you. None of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. After disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right and sang to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The word of the Lord. Okay, so Paul's uh, stuck on uh, Malta, and while he's there, uh, the people were incredibly generous. Uh, It was cold, it was rainy, and so they built a fire for those uh, who were there. And even the chief man of the island, we don't know if he was a governor or whether he was just a leading citizen of Malta, but actually took Paul, Luke, and a couple others, not everybody on board, uh, but they took them uh, into uh, his home. But while this fire is being built, uh, Paul decides to do his part and he begins to collect some brushwood. And what happens? A viper latches onto him. Now, actually, the word here doesn't mean that he was bit, but I think that we can deduce that readily. And uh, what Paul does is uh, this is uh, a scene right out of Duck Dynasty. Uh, he's got the viper on him and he simply flings it uh, into the fire uh, where it dies. And what is the people's response? He must be a murderer. He survived the sea, but he cannot outlast justice. And what they're referring to is the goddess Dike, who who is the one who gives retribution and justice. And where he may have escaped uh, his great recompense when he was on board the ship, uh, finally justice has caught up to him and it's been executed uh, through this uh, poisonous snake. And so the snake bites him and they say that he's a viper. Paul throws the the snake into the fire, and he doesn't swell up, he doesn't fall over dead, and then what do they say? This is crazy. I mean, in literally a 10-minute time span, they go from saying he's a murderer to he's a god. That's upward mobility. That that is really impressive, but on display is the fickleness of human nature, that 
on the one hand, uh, people are very quick to jump to conclusions, uh, not just about people, but even the message of the gospel, uh, and then to have uh, their minds changed uh, readily. And even though their mind has been changed, it's still changed in the wrong direction. Uh, Paul actually is a murderer by his own admission. We know that he's a murderer because before he uh, had his Damascus Road experience, what was he doing? He was persecuting Christians, gathering up in order that they might be executed. Uh, and uh, most of these being extrajudicial, uh, all of them really, extrajudicial killings. And so he was a murderer, uh, but this is the same when Paul was uh, in, in Greece. Remember, uh, they thought that Paul was uh, a great god. And then within a couple minutes, what did they want to do? Let's kill him. Uh, so this is just the nature of the beast, and nothing has changed uh, through the several millennia that we've lived through since the time of Jesus, uh, where uh, people are going to get the wrong uh, idea uh, most of the time. Uh, we're going to readily misjudge people in situations. But fast-forwarding, he, uh, he goes up toward Rome, and what an amazing trip this must have been, uh, because it says that uh, on the way, what happens is that Christians come down to the form of Appius and the three taverns, which is right on the Appian Way, uh, the, the a really incredible feat of engineering by the Romans, uh, and uh, they've come to greet Paul because they hear that he's coming. And of course, these are the Christians that Paul wrote to. Remember, the epistle to the Romans, Paul had already written that. And so now all of a sudden, Paul is able to see the faces of the people that he had written to, and they're excited to welcome him, even though he's literally chained to a guard. He's got his right wrist, there's a chain, and sort of like, I've never seen this. Have you all seen couriers with briefcases and handcuffs on the plane? I actually applied for a courier license because I wanted to do that, but nobody would hire me. And, uh, but that's really kind of what it looked like, is that Paul was handcuffed uh, to this guard, and yet he's overjoyed uh, to meet these brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And just when you, don't, when you think that, well, now that he's going to be amongst Christians in a body of believers in Rome, maybe there'll be greater understanding amongst the people. Now, one of the crazy things, think back to what, what Paul has been through from his time in Jerusalem to the ship passage and the wreckage and all that was going on and then Malta and being bitten by a snake. And then he's up there and it says he was in Rome for how many days before he set his nose to the grindstone and got to work? Three. He really didn't waste much time. He had himself a nice little holiday weekend and then he got right back to work. And he did what he always did. He called for the Jewish leaders. He said, I'm going to preach first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And so he does that. And he begins to preach, and immediately, as his preaching does, it causes division. And we have this wonderful verse. This is the one that really sent them uh, out as they disagreed among themselves after Paul had made one statement when he said this from the book of Isaiah, "'Go to this people and say, "'You will indeed hear but never understand. "'You will indeed see but never perceive. "'For this people's heart has grown dull.'" And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Paul is uh, talking about what is really a significant theme throughout the entire, entirety of the Bible, 
uh, which is that humanity has, yes, a sin problem, but our blindness can be rooted in three different things, often all at the same time. One, our blindness is because of the hardness of our own human hearts. Uh, because of our own sinfulness, we're actually blind and can't comprehend the gospel. Uh, two, the message is actually alienating. So the preacher is actually doing an alienating or dividing work when he preaches the gospel or she preaches the gospel. And then finally, God's judgment against people, that he actually does uh, blind them uh, to uh, himself out of uh, judgment. Which means that biblically speaking, there are actually only two classes of people, dead people and people who are alive. And even Paul, even though he encounters different cultures and different kinds of people, uh, and he does often tailor his message to the group that he's speaking to or preaching to, uh, and yet the message is still always the same, right? The gospel is always the same. The message is still the same, but the vehicle that moves it is often different because knowing that regardless of your station or place in life, uh, you're either dead uh, or you're alive in Christ. And if you're alive in Christ, it means that God has quickened your ears to the extent that you can actually hear the message of the gospel and, and grab hold of, it, hold of it, and then you experience the new birth. Uh, but if you're dead, and I'm going to be preaching about this this next Sunday, uh, you're not going to comprehend it a- at all. You're not going to be able to understand it until God Himself uh, intervenes uh, in His life, which we know He does. He doesn't leave us to ourselves. Look at Paul's own experience, that Paul uh, was headed in the completely wrong direction, and yet God intervened in his life on the road to Damascus. And so what does that mean? It means that Paul's mission, which I think is a good template for the church, was to all people. Uh, John Wesley echoed this uh, when he was criticized for preaching outside of parish boundaries in the Church of England at the time of the Methodist revival, and he responded that the world is my parish. Or uh, Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, when they thought, why in the world would you want to go to China? And Hudson Taylor responded, but if I don't go, who will tell them? And so there's this burning desire to get the gospel even unto the ends of the earth. And of course, the Jews here in Rome, what did they say? Surprisingly, they said, well, we haven't heard about you, which is pretty surprising, but we've definitely heard about Christianity. But we're interested to hear what you have to say, so let's get together and let's hear it. Now, I bring this up because I was struck, Lauren and I last Sunday were at a church, and the rector of the church uh, that Lauren and I went to when we were uh, dating, uh, interviewed, brought up front for July 4th weekend, uh, General Mick and Be- uh, Betty Kicklider. And uh, General Kicklider uh, used to command the, basically the, the Army of the Pacific. Uh, he was in charge of the Pacific Command. Uh, he was in charge of the transition uh, when they gave sovereignty back to the Iraqi people. He went and led that for the Department of Defense. He's a man of accomplishment, uh, but has nothing compared to his wife. <laughs> uh, Betty uh, initially was very demure and was just kind of talking about what it was like and what you can be praying for from military families. Uh, 
and then, uh, and then all of a sudden uh, the surface was cracked and she really went for it to the point where General Kicklider tried to take the microphone back and she smacked his hand and said, I'm not finished. Um, it was a wonderful thing. Uh, but what she said was really uh, uh, not just true, but um, one of those things that, you know, she left it with, well, what are you going to do about it? And what she said was this. She said, you know, uh, Mick and I grew up uh, during World War II. Uh, we were teenagers when World War II happened. And she said, never in, our, in, in the history of our country as they had experienced it, had the country ever been more united. And she said this after living through and uh, going all over the world in the army and uh, General uh, Kicklider serving in uh, Korea and, and Vietnam and, uh, and in Desert Storm and then going back over to Iraq uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, she said uh, that never in her own experience has our country been more divided. And there really is uh, a speaking past one another and a failure to understand one another and a failure to really desire uh, to want to understand one another. And I think this really transcends not just politics, uh, but actually the culture that exists or the culture divide that exists uh, in uh, our country uh, today. Uh, on the trip up to Washington, D.C., uh, the girls and I uh, stopped where I grew up and then uh, went uh, up into the Shenandoah Valley, up around Harper's Ferry, West Virginia. And I'd read about uh, the opioid epidemic in, um, in West Virginia, and, um, but I got to see it. Uh, I got to see it. Maybe some of you are listening to the podcast S-Town uh, here uh, in Alabama, you know, not that far uh, from Birmingham. And that is a culture uh, that most of us in this room uh, have no acquaintance with, much less any interaction with. Uh, it's a completely other thing. And, you know, when we talk about the demographic of the nuns, you know, those people who now say that I don't believe in anything, Everyone always thinks that there are people in their 20s who live in San Francisco. But do you know who makes up the bulk of that demographic? Working class America. Blue collar workers. Who would even say, yeah, I mean, I believe in God, kind of, but I really don't know uh, the place that it has uh, in my own life. And I would commend to you, if you haven't read two books, uh, Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance and uh, Coming Apart by Charles Murray, J.D. Vance talks about the migration of folks from Appalachia to the Midwest into the industrial cities and what that looks like right now. And Charles Murray, who's a scholar with the American Enterprise Institute, uh, unpacks that and gives you statistics and research as to why that's happened. And in Murray's book, he, he points out, he said, you know, the divide between the have and the have-nots in America uh, is is so significant. And he said, because the fact of the matter is that actually um, back in the 1950s, uh, the example they used was um, uh, Meriwether Post, uh, who, you know, uh, had a lot of money and because she didn't have enough, married E.F. Hutton. And, um, and so uh, there she is cruising around the world on the sea cloud. Some of you actually may have actually been on the sea cloud. You can now cruise on it uh, if you buy a ticket. Uh, and uh, owned multiple homes, uh, Mar-a-Lago, uh, it was one of those homes, uh, all over the place. But the point that Murray makes was, you know, if you went to dinner at uh, the Post House, what they served at dinner would be what would be served in almost any other home. Chicken, beef, 
pork chops. Uh, it was nothing ostentatious. And if you went into uh, the library at any of their homes, you would find books uh, that everybody else was reading. You open the refrigerator and they're drinking the same Pabst Blue Ribbon that, that you're drinking. The only difference was they just had more money to buy PBR. Right, that, that was really uh, the only difference, but actually uh, there was a common culture uh, across the board uh, in America uh, that no longer exists. Another good book, if you want to get an idea of what's happened, is David Brooks' um, book, Bobos in Paradise, uh, where we now have a bohemian bourgeoisie culture in America. And I think it's safe to say that uh, most of us in here are bobos that most of us are, are, are part of uh, that class that is uh, outpacing the rest of uh, America, uh, especially in terms of education uh, and, and culture. And I felt this acutely when I was talking to friends and family members back in Virginia. Uh, I, I mean, I really, I, I wasn't, I, yeah, I guess I could say that I really was embarrassed that even trying to communicate with them, I was talking to uh, a friend who was talking about work. And, um, and he kept talking about work in terms of dollar value, but he had reduced, he, he was thinking about it in terms of wages. And so he thought of work in terms of an hourly wage, where I think of ter- work in terms of, of a salary. Like I've actually never sat down and calculated how much I make an hour. Maybe I should. Uh, but I, I, don't, uh, I, I don't do that. But also hearing them talk about, uh, you know, they said, you know, we wanted to send the kids to Parks and Rec camp, but gosh, we really can't afford uh, to pay that much money for, to send that many kids to camp. Oh, your daughter's going to camp in Western North Carolina. How much is that? Now, thankfully, I could plead ignorance, uh, but I knew full and well that uh, add a zero. Uh, add a zero to whatever the Parks and Rec uh, camp was. And I realized that that I was living on a totally different plane and not in a sort of up-looking-down but in a way that I was convicted in my heart because I realized how am I able to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to a huge swath of America that is literally dying in many instances uh, for answers uh, to the things that keep us up uh, at night. And so even though uh, America is deeply divided, and I think Betty Kicklider was right because she closed with the voice, uh, the, uh, I've got uh, the verse from uh, Jeremiah of, you know, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, uh, I will forgive uh, and I will heal their land. And so the problem, I realized, it's not the president. Uh, it's not necessarily the opioid uh, epidemic. Uh, it's not necessarily uh, the media In fact, the problem is in here. And so am I willing uh, to not just acknowledge that the gospel is for everybody, but actually to do something about it? Now, at the same time, look, the Advent has incredible strengths that we ought to absolutely double down on. Uh, I think that the Advent has a sphere of influence Uh, to be able to preach the gospel to a demographic that many other people and many other churches are not able to reach. And so it's absolutely not forsaking that, but I think it would be sinful for us to say, well, at the Advent, the gospel is only for a certain type of person. Uh, It's not uh, for uh, for those 
uh, people. If you've never been to our Thursday morning praise service, uh, I would invite you to come and, and be a part of that uh, just to see that the Advent community is bigger than just that Thursday, than just our Sunday morning service and bigger than just our Thursday morning service. And even the way that we used to talk about it, we used to call it the Thursday outreach service, which meant what? It was for people that we thought needed outreach. Well, we all need outreach, right? The person who is driving around in a Rolls Royce is just, uh, could be just as lost and dead in their trespasses as the person who slept last night in Lynn Park. And so that requires a great deal of, of humility to actually for us to say who are very well educated and really have our lives together, at least from the outside, to say, I don't know what I'm doing. And I may not even know what I'm talking about. When I, I now preach monthly in that service, and that preaching is especially challenging for me uh, because how do I preach the same gospel in a coherent manner? Like some of the examples and illustrations that, that I would use here on a Sunday morning are not the illustrations and examples that I would use on Thursday. But not just that, by God's grace and mercy, what we're seeing more and more of at the Advent is that the folks who are coming on Thursday morning are starting to come on Sundays. And part of it is because at a very base level, I hope what we understand and what Paul understood is that the division really is just a spiritual division that if we have brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ coming uh, to the Advent who are eager to hear the same life-giving message that we're eager to hear, uh, then they are indeed brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should roll out a radical welcome to those people in the same way that we would roll out a radical welcome uh, to anybody uh, who sets foot uh, in uh, this place. Even the people uh, who are very antagonistic toward us. Uh, I'm seeing more and more in Birmingham, uh, not just an indifference to Christianity, but an antagonism. And uh, what, you know, there's a sort of inertia that happens. Whatever's happening on the East Coast and the West Coast eventually kind of filters down to us. And we're starting to see it. And the bumper sticker that said it best for me while I was walking, Fourth of July, I don't know why they would celebrate the Fourth of July, but as I'm walking through the parking lot, there was a bumper sticker in Washington, D.C. that said, when fascism comes to America, it will be wrapped in the American flag and carrying a cross. Well, what are they saying? Well, one, I don't think that we should be wrapping the Bible up in the American flag, uh, and nor do I think that we should be using uh, religion as a means to, to oppress people. Uh, but at the same time, what that shows us is that uh, there's not just an underlying, but there is overt... Um, disdain for Christianity and patriotism, but I'm not going to get into that uh, this morning, uh, but to Christianity. And so you're not just talking to people who may be indifferent to Jesus Christ and indifferent to the gospel, but you're no longer trying to figure out how do I minister to the people whose children are meth addicts? Or as a friend of mine, uh, I have an African-American friend uh, who's a pastor of a church here in town, uh, and he was telling me that, he said, you know, one of the great differences, he said, you know, I asked my congregation two weeks ago, how many of you have a family member in prison? And he said at least 75% of the congregation raised its hand. Not just that, how do, we, how do we minister to those people? How are we all things to all men in order that some might be saved? But also to the people who think, that Christianity is not just passe, but, but dangerous uh, and oppressive 
and we need to move beyond it and we need to actually take any and all power away from anyone who might be considered a redneck and it should all be coalesced and housed within a certain demographic of the cultural elite. And if there's anything that offends them, whether it be a symbol or an individual, the answer is to obliterate it, to completely get rid of it. And so now we have, I mean, two extremes. Uh, you know, whether we agree with this politically or not, this is not a political statement, but out in Arizona, I think the guy that uh, they had put up a Ten Commandments monument at a courthouse, and the man's response was to hit it with his truck and destroy it. I mean, that, uh, there really doesn't seem to be a place anymore for civil discourse, and of all places where that ought to be possible, where we can actually get beyond our differences because of Jesus Christ, it ought to be the church. And, and this ought to be a place where how good and pleasant it is where brethren, and what's the, what's, what's the equivalent? Sisterin? Uh, brethren and sisterin uh, dwell together in unity. And that's exactly what Paul did. It didn't mean that you're not going to, to put people off because of the hardness of their hearts or the judgment of God or even the message because it is alienating. Uh, but let them be alienated for the right reasons. Uh, let them be confronted with their own sinfulness and their, their own lostness or their own pride or even our own prejudices and pride. Let the Holy Spirit deal with us because what Paul did is he simply poured out the gospel as we said here, as, as Luke tells us in he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance, which means he did not care. In the same way that the Lord Jesus Christ couldn't give two hoots to the wind about who was there listening to his preaching and whose lives were being changed. Remember what they, they grumbled that this man did what? He ate with sinners and tax collectors. But Jesus said, look, if you don't think you need a doctor, you don't need me. You're on your own. Uh, but I have come uh, to seek uh, the least and the lost uh, in order uh, that they might enter into a life-giving relationship uh, with their uh, heavenly Father. And that is the testimony of the book of Acts. Uh, it is uh, the world on fire because of a few men and women that God raised up by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you couldn't get a more culturally diverse world than the Mediterranean world. I mean, just the difference between... Well, just think about the Mediterranean even today. I mean, it might have all been under Roman control, uh, but it was completely different customs, language. Uh, there's another great book, if, if you're really into this stuff, uh, it's also very helpful to put you to sleep, called The Barbarian Conversion. What did it look like uh, for missionaries to go up uh, into uh, Germany and into Northern Europe uh, and even over uh, to what is the modern-day United Kingdom and Ireland? Uh, that they took the gospel up there, uh, risking life and limb and reputation uh, because they were captivated uh, by the Holy Spirit of God and did not allow difference uh, to be a hindrance, uh, but longed to see others enter into uh, a relationship with the Lord Jesus. And so Paul preached to the lowly Maltese, but even up to Caesar, because what would happen, Paul would actually be released from prison here and would be able to preach the gospel to Nero himself. Uh, but it was sometime after that where he was rearrested and tried and would die. 
but for the time being, uh, Paul was using his imprisonment and not even allowing it, but using his chains as an illustration uh, that uh, there really is no hindrance to the gospel uh, for the Holy Spirit takes it and goes out and accomplishes what it was purposed to do and does not come back empty. I've said a lot. If you want to push back a little bit, please do. Uh, I welcome it. Um, so, Andrew, I have a, a thought, a thought slash question, and then a question. So my thought is, when you just said working class America constitutes the nuns, like, duh. Yeah. There's nothing that they can hold on to or... or I sometimes think that there's nothing that they could hold on to that's saying, like, what a gift from God. Whereas I have a roof over my head and food in my, on my, in my stomach and clothes on my back, and it's easy for me to perceive the gifts of God on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. My thought slash question is, man, I worry about this all the time, and I talk to Helen about it a lot. What is my responsibility? What is my... I know that there is no karma within our religion or within Christianity, but golly, I, got, I have some responsibility as a person who lives in Birmingham and drives a car that functions and has a job that I get to go to that I right. enjoy, that allows me to provide for my family. I have some responsibility. What is it? Yeah. And then my straight-up question is, Gunner and I went to go see U2, right, a couple weeks ago, and it was amazing. And Bono's up there, and he's, like, freaking preaching to the masses. And he's talking, and Gunner and I get in the car ride back, and we're on fire for, like, two days about, here's what we can do, here's what we need to do, here's who we need to talk to, blah, 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 blah. And then a week after that, I'm back in my same self-centered egocentric world where I worry about what's going on with me exclusively and there is no thought as to I mean it's it's the same thing as working out and eating right I think about it and I try to do it and then it just fades away and I want to know how I can how I can do it better yeah well Jesus was asked the question who is my neighbor right and who is your everybody everybody's your neighbor and I think what Paul had and many of us don't, including me, is perspective, right? I don't think that the answer is stop driving a nice car. I I don't think that the answer is to patronize a group of people and say, you need me to help you. I think it's having a perspective on knowing your own sinful self and understanding that your sin and your life manifests itself in maybe a more socially acceptable way I'm not saying you necessarily, Rhett. Uh, I'm talking about Helen, uh, (laughs) your daughter. uh, A more socially acceptable way than... And and so, one, we have to understand that we're all in the same boat. And so when we go into the Dairy Queen in Martinsburg, West Virginia, and we see two people who are visibly addicted to meth, our hearts should break for them. There's nothing that we, we wouldn't want to do. And so I think that the fact that if our hearts are moved to care, uh, that's, that's one thing. But when it comes to individual responsibility of how you get involved, 
Uh, I don't know because I'm not about to lay another law on somebody's shoulders and say, this is what you have to do. But if that's where your heart is leading, there are plenty of things that you can be involved in, uh, in recovery type ministries uh, or anything uh, like that. I mean, it may be at a corporate level, the Advent partnering with a church that is in a, an epidemic area in Alabama. And rather than saying, we have all the answers, just ask the question, how can we help? How can we help? If it's putting on VBS, if it's, uh, you know, if they need a youth minister, maybe we can help with, I mean, whatever it might be, I think that there needs to be a lot of listening. There needs to be a lot of listening and, and hearing uh, from where people are, are coming from. So again, the first thing, perspective. I think God needs to open the eyes of our hearts beyond our bubble, uh, but two, that, that our hearts might be moved uh, to love people as our neighbors and not to treat them as spiritual statistics that we're just interested in getting you, in your, you your fire insurance and punching your get-out-of-hell-free card. Uh, we do want them in a life-saving relationship with the Lord Jesus because at the end of the day, that's our only hope. Right? I don't, you know, I, I don't want us to simply, we have to minister to the whole person, I guess is what I'm saying. And so I think that, that it really is up to us to be creative and to figure out ways in which uh, we might be able to do it. And even to look around here at the Advent in our daily life, you know, what does it look like to be hospitable? What does it look like to be a place of, of welcome? Uh, whether you are culturally elite and think that Christianity is the worst thing that ever happened to America, or whether you're uh, a meth addict. doesn't matter. Andrew, I would think, and um, I guess I've been thinking a lot about your Thursday morning, or was it Thursday evening? Um, I would think that it would be easier, maybe, to preach the gospel to somebody who knew their need for the gospel and yeah. to know, maybe even firsthand, evil and sin versus somebody who wasn't aware as much of the evil and the sin in the world. Yeah. And, and addiction is, is just one of those. But the congregation where 70% had a relative in prison, I would think they knew their, their need every day for right. the gospel and for Jesus. Yeah. Um, somebody asked Carl Bart, what's the easiest congregation you've ever preached to? And he said, oh, prisoners. He said, preaching in prison is probably the easiest thing because I don't have to convince them that they're in bondage. Uh, their own brokenness. Um, yeah, and I, I think, too, that, uh, you know, I don't want to isolate it to say that, because, again, the, the, the addiction issue is just a presenting issue, and that cuts across all classes of people. Uh, but uh, I think it's just the den general disenfranchisement and the feeling of separation that a huge swath of our country feels right now. And we saw that manifested in our election uh, that I don't think, you know, it, it's enough. I don't think we can blow that off. And to blow it off is to our own, our own peril uh, because uh, Jesus came for even them. Uh, and so, you know, when I'm not saying this about the Advent, but I was talking to a church one time and they said, we really want to grow. And after speaking with them, they wanted to really grow with people that were just like them. And, uh, and that's not what the kingdom of God looks like. I mean, that's not what heaven's going to look like. And as glorious as the Advent is, especially on Sunday mornings, uh, you know, 
that's not what it's going to look like, probably. It'll still be glorious. It'll be wonderful. But, but we're only catching glimpses here of what uh, the kingdom of heaven looks like. Nina. Um, I don't know if I'm still here, but, you know, if, if, I don't know if Rhett is, is still here, but if, just to answer his question or anybody else's question that might have something on their heart, I think maybe a way to start might be to get in touch with Bethany, who's head of our outreach, and find out what the Advent is investing in. Yeah and see if there's something that the Holy Spirit might be leading them towards. Because I know Bethany is hoping that we'll go deeper with yes. our outreach partners yeah. here in this city and in the state and in the world. Yeah. So uh, speaking of the visioning process, um, <clears throat> one of the, uh, I'm, that's one of the problems we have around here is communication. How do we communicate what we're involved in and how people can get uh, involved? And so I do think that that's it. But above all, that we would be a congregation that would get to a place where we uh, actually are in a place like Paul where we're willing to welcome all who came, come to us and proclaim the kingdom of God and teach about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Uh, because I don't know about you, I don't even do that to the people who are like me. I don't. I mean, the people who I would find it actually culturally to preach the gospel to, I find myself hesitant uh, to share the gospel. And so I think that maybe that might be the first step, is what does it look like to share the gospel with people who are like us, but also people who are not like us. <clears throat> Anything else? Now that you've got the weight of the world on your shoulders, uh, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you indeed that uh, this is not a problem that we carry alone, but Lord, uh, we cast our burdens upon you for you care for us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would uh, actually give us hearts uh, to love all people uh, regardless of, of where they are in life and what they think or what they believe or, Lord, even how they behave but that we would be given over wholly uh, to the preaching of your gospel, and Lord, that we would love you so much that in turn we might love uh, our neighbors and that we would be uh, a people uh, who welcome all, uh, but also, Lord, are ones who teach and preach about the Lord Jesus Christ uh, with boldness and without hindrance. Uh, empower us by your Spirit, for apart from you we can do nothing. And so, Lord, use us for our good and for the good of others, but above all, for your great glory. In Jesus' name, amen.